everyone wants to get more sleep, and there are a ton of different sleep hacks out there, noise machines, meditation, earplugs, which I do, but you can immediately transform your sleep with Bowl & Branch. We have Bowl & Branch sheets in our house. They're in white. They are so soft. In fact, we say all the time, but they really do get softer with every wash. And the sheets also come in a really pretty box, kind of wrapped up like a present just for you. They feel buttery and breathable to start. And again, as Motion and I always say, they get softer with every wash. Best of all, it feels a little bit luxurious every time you slip into bed. These best-selling sheets are also made with the finest 100% organic cotton. They are completely free from toxins, soft yet super breathable. There's a 30-night worry-free guarantee so you can wash them, style them, and sleep in them for an entire month. And if you don't really love them, you could send them back right away. And again, they're made without toxins. There's no synthetic pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. So sleep better with the softest, most breathable bedding from Bowl & Branch. Get 15% off your order when you use the promo code MONEWS at bowlandbranch.com. That is Bowl & Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. That promo code MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S, for 15%, off your order. Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wanunu with a Mo News conversation this week. After spending the last few weeks focused here domestically at home, we're going global for our latest conversation as the U.S. and major Western powers hold meetings for the G7 and NATO summits. They're talking about all things Ukraine, the economy, inflation, energy, China, climate change, and so are we this week. I first met Eurasia Group founder and political scientist Ian Bremmer during my time at CBS News, where I loved having him on as a contributor on our shows because he didn't mince any words. Ian always called it like it is, and his predictions when it came to international affairs, as best as they can be in this world, usually turned out to be pretty close to true. He's also the founder of G0 Media, a foreign policy news analysis service he calls G0 because he believes there's no one running the world these days, despite those meetings at the so-called G7. Ian has a new book out this month where he lays out the challenges and solutions to what he says are the three biggest crises facing the world, climate change, pandemics, and what he calls disruptive technology. And despite those issues, as big as they may be, Bremer says he's an optimist and the world can prevent catastrophe. So I've called this episode, which we taped earlier this month, How the World Can Save Itself. In his brand new New York Times bestseller, The Power of Crisis, Bremer draws lessons from global challenges over the past 100 years. He uses those lessons to show how the global community can actually respond positively to the biggest challenges of our time. We also talked about the latest in Ukraine, what's next for China, Iran, the state of the Middle East, a little bit of everything in this conversation. A quick reminder to follow or subscribe to this podcast on your app right now and leave us a review if you like it at the end of the episode. Every one of you makes a difference. With that, I bring you my conversation with Ian Bremmer. I want to get to the book, but I also want to start with a few acute micro threats, if you will, before we delve into your kind of macro threats. Um, Ukraine, China. Micro threats. That's good. I I like that more than microaggressions. People get very excited about microaggressions these days. I avoid those, but we can talk about micro threats. Well, you know, it's so interesting. I call it micro threats, but they really dominate the headlines. Micro threats being Ukraine, Russia. Uh, what's going on in China, and then just bucket 
Middle East, energy, well, terrorism, regional conflict. Relevant, um, all relevant to each other and relevant to the book, frankly. So no problem. Totally. So let's start in Russia and Ukraine. We're now more than 100 days into the war there. Uh, the world seemed to get united in those first three months of the war. It's looking increasingly precarious when it comes to kind of the, uh, how united the West remains. And at the same time, Putin is controlling about 20% of Ukraine. Based on my rough math, it's roughly the size of New York State. Um, how are things there right now? How might they end? Where are we now uh, more than 100 days into the war? Well, I mean, the world wasn't aligned uh, to respond to the invasion uh, back in February. The West was. Um, and uh, that's an important differentiator because Russia is a G20 economy that is integrated into the world economy. Uh, people all over the world buy Russian oil and gas and fertilizer and food. Um, and uh, a lot of them still are. So the West's response was threefold. It was, number one, the uh, toughest sanctions that have ever been levied against an economy of this scale ever. Uh, secondly, an enormous amount of military support um, to the Ukrainian government. Um, and three, uh, a level of uh, intelligence support and coordination on the disposition of Russian forces to better enable the Ukrainians to fight. Now, um, 100 days in, there's still a Ukrainian government in place democratically elected, and they control most of their territory, including the capital, Kiev. Um, and frankly, that is a testament, of course, to the courageous fighting of the Ukrainians, but also to the effectiveness and the success of the West's policies. Um, Putin failed. He failed to overthrow Zelensky. He failed to integrate Ukraine into a new Russian empire. That was his intention. Um, he had to withdraw those forces and redeploy them. He's also failed because his economy is in free fall. Um, his international central bank assets have been frozen. His GDP has contracted this year, looking at 10%, probably will continue apace in the coming years. Um, and, uh, and NATO, meanwhile, is expanding. It's becoming more coordinated, more consolidated, stronger, and it's about to include Finland and Sweden. So, I mean, however you look at this, this is a massive loss for Putin. It is a misjudgment, uh, a geopolitical misjudgment of greater scale than that of any leader I have seen since the collapse of the Soviet Union. It is that big a deal. Um, but going forward, uh, it is true that maintaining this level of coordinated support for Ukraine from the West is going to be harder. And maintaining uh, a continued amount of punishment of Russia economically as you start to hit bone um, for some of the citizens living in Europe and even the United States, given levels of inflation, gas price, and the rest, uh, that's gonna be more challenging too. And you know, Putin, to the extent that he is uh, interested in declaring victory, his ability to do so, given that he controls the media and controls there is no opposition party in Russia and he can say whatever he wants. Um, I think that the um, the fact that he has 20 percent of Ukrainian territory has a land bridge between Crimea and the Donbass. 
um, and has the French president publicly and the German chancellor privately saying we should really find some way to climb this down and give the Russians the ability to save face, which is a very different position than the Americans have, the Poles have, the Baltics have, most importantly than the Ukrainians have. I do think that Putin probably sees that there is more opportunity for him if he holds on to his present position, if he keeps fighting right now in six and 12 months time than there has been in the first three months. But relating it to the book very quickly, the point here, the biggest point here is that, you know, NATO is stronger and more functional. The Europeans are spending money on national security and prioritizing it. The belief that you need to stand for the territorial integrity of a democracy is stronger today. All of those things on the back of and because of Putin's invasion. It is precisely the West's response to crisis that gave the opportunity to reform and rebuild architecture that has been eroding for decades. And that's exactly what the book is all about. So ultimately, I mean, it sounds to me like the way the West reacted in the past few months can be viewed optimistically in, in regards to some of the upcoming crises and challenges that the that the globe faces. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, compared to what happened in Afghanistan, where the Americans were, I mean, not even coordinated between two administrations and certainly not coordinated with their allies uh, that were fighting with them. Uh, since the 9-11 attacks. I mean, the Americans very happy to get a you know, group of 50 allies in a coalition to say we've been attacked and we want your help. But when the Americans leave, they leave by themselves. Very, very different from what you would have expected, given what we've seen the last few months. And then furthermore, what Putin expected. I mean, Putin believed. Putin didn't read my book, right? Putin believed that uh, Biden's weak. Afghanistan was a disaster. Merkel's gone. Macron is going his own way. He's got uh, energy leverage. The Chinese are his buds. The Ukrainians aren't going to fight. I mean, he believed that he could get away with this, that he could take Ukraine out and actually incorporate them into a greater Russian empire. He could undo the collapse of the Soviet Union that he considered to be the greatest geopolitical debacle of the 20th century. He was deeply wrong. And I think that going forward, the Chinese are learning lessons from the fact that, yeah, the West will come together if we were to suddenly invade Taiwan, that there is risk around that for us that's more significant than we might have anticipated before. We we might not want to make the kind of mistake that President Putin just made. And I, I think that that also limits how much the Chinese are willing to go to bat for their you know sort of limitless friend. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia going forward. So briefly, even if uh, this ends months from now, a year from now, with a greater portion of Ukraine annexed by Vladimir Putin, ultimately, you see that as a, as a victory for the West because of what the alternative could have been. Um, I would have liked that victory absent such a crisis. I think that there were things the West could have done in response to the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008 or Ukraine in 2014, or that they could have done in response to the uh, Budapest memorandum when the Ukrainians gave up their nuclear weapons in 1994 and the United States, the United Kingdom promised 
um, to defend their territorial integrity. Uh, there were many missed opportunities here. And I do not in any way want to minimize the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians that have been kidnapped, that are now in filtration camps in Russia, the tens of thousands of war crimes that have been perpetrated by the Russian regime against Ukrainian civilians on the ground, including women and children on the ground in Ukraine. So, I mean, to say that there's good news that comes from this crisis, I want to be very, very clear that the Ukrainians are getting none of it. But in an environment that is as geopolitically fraught as the what I call the geopolitical recession we are in right now, where the leadership is so mistrusted, is so polarized. The fact is that frequently you need crises to get yourself out of that recession and to build stronger institutions, to reform the eroding and delegitimized institutions that you have. And this invasion of Ukraine by Russia has done precisely that. You invoke China and, and, and how they're watching the conflict. And I want to get to China as our second micro crisis, if you will. How the U.S. and West is approaching China, China as they continue kind of their surge towards becoming the world's largest economy. Where does China stand right now when it comes to the economically, militarily, technologically? And how is the West approaching China? Basically, the problem that is China, how is it being approached? And, and, and how do you see it unfolding o- over the coming years? China, unlike Russia, is not a country in decline. Uh, China is a country um, with robust political stability at home, with strong economic growth um, that allows and affords it uh, much greater international influence around the world. They're investing significantly in their education, in their military, in their technological capabilities. They are not a global superpower. The United States is. Uh, But certainly China is on a pathway to becoming the largest economy in the world, likely in the next 10 years. Also, unlike Russia, the United States has a robust interdependent economic relationship with China. And that relationship works both ways. The Americans like buying cheap goods from China. China likes exporting those goods to the United States. The Americans appreciate the Chinese lending money into U.S. treasuries. The Chinese see the U.S. dollar as the safest large bet that they can make outside of China. And the fact that there is no trust in the relationship does not in any way obviate the reality that there is this enormous interdependence. And so the way I see the U.S.-China relationship is kind of like two parents who live together and don't love each other anymore, but they have kids that they do both love, and those kids are young and they're at home. Um, And they're going to make sure that they keep the relationship functional so that the whole thing doesn't fall apart. That's kind of where we are. So we say all sorts of nasty things about each other. We're we're snippy with each other. We talk about our demands, how we want things to go differently, and we don't move the needle very much. And yet we are not prepared to break the relationship because it's too important for both of us. And we both understand that even if we don't say it very often. So it's very interesting that despite all the posturing the Chinese have made in support of Russia, the Chinese are not doing anything to break U.S. sanctions on Russia. They're not providing military support for Russia because they know that that would cross a red line. Um, The Americans talk a lot about support for Taiwan, but they're not changing U.S.-Taiwan policy. And they didn't make Taiwan a part 
of the recent Indo-Pacific economic framework that the Americans announced because they don't want to break the relationship they have with China. I can go on and on, but the reality is that this economic relationship is uh, frankly a level of mutually assured destruction between the two countries that in some ways is analogous to the nuclear mutually assured destruction that helped ensure that the Americans and the Soviets didn't get into a hot war. Well, the mutually assured economic destruction that the US and China has helps to ensure that the US and China don't get involved in a cold war as much as the language between the two countries actually does reflect a very hostile relationship. I could go on, I'm sure, and you could go on, you could teach a course on China, but I, I want to jump here to the Middle East, uh, which each of the individual regional conflicts and individual conflicts in the Middle East deserve its own, uh, and books have been written about them, but want to speak about it generally because the region itself tends to dominate the time and attention of Western diplomats um, every time there's a, a sense of a pivot to Asia or a pivot to more urgent issues, the Middle East tends to suddenly take center stage. So curious when it comes specifically to the threat of terror, energy needs, um, your take on kind of the, the larger state of, of the region and how much time and attention it should and deserves when it comes to how the West looks at the globe. I mean, it deserves less attention uh, than it, it gets. And I mean, I remember when uh, when Kerry became secretary of state um, for Obama and he spent his first year and a half doing Israel, Palestine, which is, you know, the kind of thing that a secretary of state used to cut their teeth on. But it was nowhere close to the priority um, that he was affording it at that point. And uh, I thought that the Trump administration, their biggest success, and they had some successes in foreign policy. They had a lot of failures, too. But their biggest success, of course, was in pivoting away from Israel-Palestine and using a changed geopolitical reality um, to facilitate an opening in relations between Israel and another a number of Arab states in the region, most notably the UAE, uh, Morocco, Bahrain, and increasingly we're close to an opening with Saudi Arabia as well. The Abraham Accords, that's a big deal. Biden has only leaned into that, frankly. And that's where the Americans should be going. They should be trying to have functional and strong relations with all of their allies in the region, just as they should in Asia between the Japanese and South Koreans and try to make sure that they don't hate each other either. Uh, and there's some movement going there. It's kind of interesting that the two most toxic sets of relations that the United States has between allies, South Korea, Japan, and Israel, Saudi, are both actually on the precipice of significant resolution. And that's actually a big deal. It's a big positive deal. People don't talk enough about it. Um, from my perspective, the Middle East, of course, it's important to have a military footprint there if you're the United States. And of course, you want to be providing humanitarian aid. You want to be supporting political reform, economic reform, uh, human development. But we also need to understand that this is a part of the world um, that is becoming less economically relevant globally over time from the peak in the 70s and the 80s to a time when the Americans are energy independent and when the world is quickly moving away from fossil fuels, that by 2045, so 20 years from now, one generation from now, a majority of the world's energy will no longer come from fossil fuels. It'll come from so, nuclear so, renewables. So your sense, your, the energy crisis, mini crisis we're facing right now, 
sort of is the last gas of relevancy for, the, oh, no. for that region? No, 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 no. It's not the last gas. I mean, 20 yeah. years is a long time and prices will be cyclical and the Saudis are going to mint money and a lot of people will want to go there for that reason. And I like seeing the economic reforms happening there, the UAE, other places, and they will produce other things that are valuable. Don't get me wrong. But high energy prices only moves you faster to the uh, scale of renewables being affordable for everyone. And, and we have broken the back of that already. We have already proved the viability of solar at scale. We have proved the viability of next generation nuclear at scale. We have proved the viability of electric vehicles and supply chain at scale. All of those things are going to move you faster away from fossil fuels. Now, so the Russian invasion of Ukraine definitely means that energy producers in the Gulf have more money in the shorter term that they can use to both ensure that their citizens are not taking the brunt of the challenges of supply chain disruption, but also they can invest more into diversifying their economies faster. That's a good thing. That's absolutely a good thing. And, and hopefully they will do more of that. I expect they will because the writing is on the wall. But it also means that the Europeans will move faster to efficiency and faster to diversification towards more renewables because the, the fossil fuel alternatives are just more expensive. This is all of this long term is positive news for the planet. Um, and again, hopefully this means that the Middle East doesn't become irrelevant, but rather it's a crisis that forces the Middle East to actually become more sustainable long term. I mean, and there's no question that if it wasn't for that, I don't think the UAE would have taken the lead in opening relations with Israel. I think they still would have been fighting on no until there's a two state solution. We're not going to we're not going to make a difference. And maybe the fact that the Israelis are going to have functional diplomatic relations with everyone in the region will force the Palestinians to take um, a longer look at the fact that they are in a weaker position than they were in 10 and 20 years ago. And therefore, the deal that needs to be cut to get them a state um, requires more urgency on their part. I think there are lots of lessons that one can draw from the framework of the book geopolitically that apply to the Middle East. One country that uh, we often talk about a crisis related to, just given their rhetoric and given their uh, uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons, is Iran. Uh, and that hasn't come up yet in this conversation as we talk about this neighborhood. Um, where do things stand there as, as far as the Iranians and their uh, potential to, again, distract the world from these larger crises? Well, they've got stockpiles now of uh, enriched uranium from 20 to 60 percent that are sufficient, um, if further enriched, to get them to two nuclear weapons. Um, that's a breakout time of probably two weeks. And the Israelis and the Americans probably can't stop them. So the fact that the Trump administration unilaterally withdrew from the JCPOA, the Iranian nuclear deal, has moved the Iranians basically to become a nuclear threshold country, though not yet a nuclear weapons state. The Israelis are angry about that. There, there was a targeted assassination recently that the Israelis are almost certainly responsible for. There's been more disruption of some of their military programs. I expect we'll see more of that. Um, whether or not you get this deal done at this point is close to a coin flip. The Iranians are still under a lot of pressure. Yes, they're making more money from higher energy prices, but they're now fighting with the Russians for market share because the Russians are selling at a deep discount, 30 percent or more to the Chinese, to the Indians. And so Iran's losing a lot of market share. 
So on balance, their economy is under more pressure. So they still could really use these sanctions to be removed or loosened by the United States and by going back into the deal. Um, there has been a lot of inflation in Iran. There have been some demonstrations. They've been violently repressed. Um, if it was big, if it was like we saw in the Green Revolution that would probably scuttle the Americans' ability to get back into the deal. But so far, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So if you made me bet right now, I would still probably be slightly better than even that the deal that we go back into the deal. And then you've got the inspectors and they're not nuclear and you got 10 years on that and you see where it goes. Um, but if not, you know, I mean, this we, great. We, you, you, you don't foresee a Pakistan like moment for Iranian nukes in the coming years. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I still think that um, for Iran to publicly test a nuclear weapon and announce that they are a nuclear state kind of really forces Israel's hand with a radically more advanced uh, both military and cyber capability in ways that the Iranians don't necessarily want to test and press. We already saw that when Trump decided no mas, I'm going to literally assassinate your most important military official. The response of Iran was nothing. It was mm -hmm. crickets. Why? Because they don't actually have anything they can do um, to to really raise um, the deterrent capacity um, of their of their own uh, escalation. Um, their bluff was called. And so, I mean, the fact that Iran is in a much weaker position, look what Iran has in the region. What's really valuable to them is a bunch of proxies that they have political influence over that afford them a level of geopolitical influence and the ability to destabilize countries around the Middle East. That's what they have. And they're not going to negotiate that away. And that makes them a problem, a problem for most of America's allies in the region. But that's not fundamentally a U.S. problem. That is much more a regional problem. And it's one, and again, another reason why the Abraham Accords were something that the time was clearly overdue for. So let's talk existential threats in this case, uh, climate, pandemic and tech, as you you lay out in your book. I'm going to start with pandemic because we're sort of kind of sort of coming off the last one. What lessons does the world learn from this, Ian? And does it give you hope or the opposite when it comes to the next one? Oh, it's mixed. It's very mixed. I mean, you know, the, the easy way to be pessimistic is say that the United States is more politically divided because of the pandemic. And that's true. And the U.S.-China relationship is worse because of the pandemic. Also true. Blaming each other, politicizing it, all this stuff. But in the early days the United States actually responded very effectively, both in terms of Operation Warp Speed on the vaccines and also everyone coming together to learn from the science. Dr. Fauci was lionized by the Dems and the Republicans in the early months. And uh, you had Pelosi and Mnuchin get together for a multi-trillion dollar deal that actually built up a V-shaped recovery in the United States, better than anyone expected they could do. And then you know what happened? Then we got complacent because then it looked like, oh, we got vaccines. So we're OK. At least we're OK if we're not really old and we don't have pre-existing conditions. And that in an electoral cycle allowed for the politicization of the crisis. It wasn't a big enough crisis to force a continued unified response. China, same thing. China looked at the United States and Europe, saw they were failing, said we're locking down, we're tracking, we're tracing, we're surveilling. We've got this down. The pandemic changes. The Chinese were complacent. And so now they don't have their people vaccinated. 
they don't have the ability um, to you know, have access to good vaccines that'll work for them or therapeutics that'll work for everyone. And so they're facing massive economic slowdowns and rolling lockdowns, even in Shanghai, three years in. So unfortunately, we learn a lot of lessons in the pandemic and how not um, to respond to an effective crisis. The uh, Europeans uh, had a much better pandemic, not because they were more, much more effective in keeping people from dying. The numbers per capita were about the same as the U.S., but um, they saw that the pandemic required a unified European response, that economically the wealthy countries spent an enormous amount of money redistributing aid and cash and investment to the poorer countries, and that built a stronger EU. And they also took control of the vaccines at an EU level, a power they didn't have before. And yeah, it took them longer because they were bureaucratic and they had to pay more for you know over time. But once they got it, it was an EU process. And the Greeks believed in it just as the Germans did, so different from the Eurozone crisis in 2010. So politically, the EU comes out of the pandemic stronger because of the EU and populism in the EU is actually weaker because of the pandemic. That, that I think, is the most hopeful lesson. Yeah, but, you know, looking back at things, like I look at the response this country, the US had after 9-11, you know, and wonder, and no, frankly, I think we could agree that there's no way we would have that similar response 20 years later, given the probability of finger pointing and partisan press and, yeah. and everything, the way it's evolved. And I, I worry that some of the examples you cited, Fauci, uh, Pelosi, Mnuchin, et cetera, that we'll look back, you know, God forbid we have another one of these pandemics, but we know the way the world works and look at the 2020 response being like, oh, those were the glory days when we could still accomplish things. I hope not. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, the response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a country we don't care an awful lot about yeah. in a political environment that's every bit as polarized. In fact, you know, at the margin, slightly more polarized than it was even two, three years ago in the United States has been incredibly effective. And I promise you, Democrats and Republicans hate Putin more than they hate each other. That's clear. Uh, and I would argue the climate response has also been considerably more effective in the United States. And that's because it's not primarily about Washington. That's because it's actually it's young people that are Democrats and Republicans. It's banks and it's corporates and it's everybody that says, my God, this is happening in a theater near you. And we really need to take it much more seriously. So I think it is true that when the country is more divided, the size of the crisis you need to get yourself out of that is greater. But those crises exist. Let's talk climate here, since you brought us there. Threat number two, existential, you know, worst case scenarios, everything's melting. We seem to be on not the worst case scenario route as you lay out in your book, but slightly less than worst case scenario. The world has made a bunch of promises, some with goals 50 years from now, 40 years from now, like the Indians. Where are we right now globally? You know, we have these COP26 in Glasgow. Where are we on some sort of global Manhattan project here? Do we need a more acute crisis for folks to really take this seriously? No. Um, I, I, how, how do you view? We're taking it seriously. So we have, first of all, we, we all identify and agree on the problem. We all agree. 195 countries now agree that there has been 1.2 centigrade degrees of warming so far. And that's not coming from cyclical features of nature. It is actually man-made. It is methane and carbon into the atmosphere. So unlike the pandemic where it's like, do we want vaccines or they're bad? Do we want lockdown? No, we all know that this is happening. We all agree. There's, there's no more fake news around it. That's impressive. Now, 
Doesn't mean that we all agree on what we should do to respond to it, but you can't fix a problem unless you can all agree on what the problem is. And we are actually in that environment. So first of all, that that gives me tremendous. And, and you feel that we're there domestically here in the U.S. Yes. as well, because without it any feels question, like from the right, you hear a little bit without any question. No, I mean, again, that doesn't mean you've got all sorts of people that are saying, well, why would we spend money on this when the Indians are doing all this with coal? And why would we in West Virginia shut down our coal mines when we need these jobs? Again, there are reasonable conversations going on about how one prioritizes resources being allocated in the context of this challenge. But there is no question about what's happening with climate, not in the US and not globally. Um, and I think that's a big deal. Secondly, there is a massive amount of money that is being spent to redeploy investment towards renewables and towards infrastructure for renewables, so much so that we now see that we're not on a trajectory for three or four or five or six degrees of warming as many activists believe we were even five years ago. Now, now it's really about 1.52 or 2.5, which is too high. And the difference between those are hundreds of trillions of dollars and hundreds of millions of people's lives. So it's a big deal, but it's incredible how much progress has already been made. And even when Trump pulls the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, it doesn't stop the progress because governors and mayors and CEOs and bankers and NGOs and young people across the country say, no, we're still committed to that. No, we're still doing that. No, we're still investing in that. And they're investing it in California and they're investing it in Texas, right? Everywhere. In order for us, though, to prevent the two and a half degree scenario and trillions and you know, flooded, flooded Bangladesh and cities, et cetera, what, what needs to happen and how important is the role of the U.S. federally and China going to be in that process? Well, I mean, there are two big things that need to happen. Um, one is that there has to be a massive amount of redistribution of wealth, just like the Europeans did between the rich and the poor. The, the, the world has to do that between the rich and the poor states. I mean, if you're Indian and you're facing 120 degree Fahrenheit temperatures in Delhi and a billion heat stressed people that can't work after 10 a.m. because it's too fucking hot out and literally, you know, uh, dead birds are falling out of the sky because of that heat. And yet your per capita income is 5% of what the United States is. And you've not been responsible for why we're here you're not prepared to accept rolling blackouts for your population. You're going to burn cheap coal unless someone's going to pay you not to burn cheap coal. And the, the Brazilians feel the same way about deforestation in the Amazon. So the difference between 1.5 and 2.5, the single biggest thing that needs to happen is there has to be much more redistribution between the rich and the poor. There has to be an acceptance that just because people aren't Americans doesn't mean they're not human beings. That, that, that's a hard thing to accept that we didn't accept that during the pandemic. But that's the single biggest thing that needs to happen to move you to one point five. When you talk about redistribution, what are you talking about? Massive aid from the U.S.? You're talking about like hundreds of billions of dollars of aid going not to the just US, the U.S. I mean, from, from Japan yeah. and yeah. from Europe. But yes, more money. And that money can take very different forms. Um, and it can also be in terms of massive investments into new technologies that will allow for faster transfer and distribution. It can be public-private partnerships. It doesn't all have to be simply aid. But again, if you want to finish, if you want to get the pandemic resolved quickly, you needed everyone in the world vaccinated. 
And that doesn't just mean vaccines. That means they need infrastructure to deliver the vaccines into the arms. When you don't give that, you've got vaccines in Africa that literally are spoiling. That's a serious problem. Well, I mean, what happens? Same situation with climate change playing out over decades. It is the same exact story. Okay. Topic number, threat number three, technology, um, disruptive technology. Um, lay out for us the challenges there and the opportunities there when it comes yeah. to threat number three, crisis three. So this is the challenge that's not quite in front of us yet, but soon is going to be. And it's very simple to describe. Um, we knew that we had, we had nuclear weapons. We knew that if everyone had their hands on nuclear weapons, we were going to blow up the world. So we did our damnedest to try to make sure there was a small nuclear club and there wasn't proliferation of those technologies. And over 80 years, we've done a reasonably good job, not in Pakistan, not in India, not in North Korea, but generally speaking, most countries don't have them and no non-state actors have them. We put a lot of effort into that. There are now a large number of 21st century disruptive technologies like lethal autonomous weapons, like offensive cyber capabilities, like disinformation um, uh, uh, algorithms that include deep fakes that you cannot literally uh, tell the difference between them and another human being that are incredibly dangerous, existentially dangerous when deployed at scale. And we literally do not have the beginnings of architecture to prevent their proliferation. So that is the challenge and that is the opportunity. And I throw it forward in the, as the last uh, of the major crises in my book as something that I'm hoping we can start to move the needle on. At least to start like with climate change, you got to identify the problem. So the first thing we need is an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence where everyone gets together and said, okay, here is what the challenge is so that we can start to resolve it. Ian Bremer, thank you. So much more to discuss in the future. Uh, you can read about it in his G0 newsletter on his G0 show uh, and in his new book, Power of Crisis, New York Times bestseller. Uh, Ian, thank you, man. Hey, good to see you, man. Take it easy. Our thanks again to Ian Bremer for his insight. A reminder, you can buy his new book, The Power of Crisis. It's a New York Times bestseller wherever you buy your books. You can also read more from our conversation in the Mo News newsletter in a recent issue over at monews.bulletin.com. And of course, uh, for your news 24-7, please follow me over on Instagram at my account at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. We plan to continue to bring you regular conversations and perspective from experts, leaders, and journalists involved in some of the biggest news stories. We appreciate your support for this podcast and hope you can follow or subscribe to the show on your podcast app of choice and leave us a review, especially if you like the episode. Thanks for joining us, everybody.